have you ever said anything that you wished you could take back? When I was in college, my summer job was to work for a roofing company. It was a commercial roofing company, so we roofed large buildings. We were roofing a high school one summer, huge building, took all summer to do. And it was a tear-off where we were tearing off the old roof and putting down a new roof. And my job was to drive the dump truck, so I drove a dump truck up against the side of the building. There was a chute, and they would take what they'd torn off the roof and dump it down that chute. It'd go into the back of the dump truck. When they filled one tr dump truck up, I would drive it out, pull a second one in, and then I would take that load to the landfill and dump it while they were filling the second one up. They would fill them really full. And when I get back, I just repeat the process. I did that almost all day long. Uh, well, where I would drive to the landfill, there was a road that I was on that would merge into a state highway. And there was a stop sign there, and I would pull up. And I don't know if you've ever uh, driven a large dump truck that's got a big load on it, but they're really hard to get going once you stop them. In fact, if you've ever been behind one that's full, you know what that's like. And so... When I would come up to that uh, state highway, oftentimes I would just look around over my left shoulder, and if I didn't see anybody coming, I would just roll right on out into the highway. That way I didn't have to come to a complete stop. Well, it just so happened that one day a state police officer apparently was watching me do this. So he pulled me over, and he came up to the truck, and he said, is there any reason you didn't stop back there at that stop sign? To which I replied, have you ever driven one of these things before? Not the way to respond. I think at that point he was like, I am not hearing this from this 21-year-old smart aleck kid. I might as well have just said, just go ahead and give me a ticket. And while you're at it, could you just write it for the largest amount of fine possible, you know? So there have been a number of things I've said throughout my life that if I had the opportunity, I would take them back. So when we come to John chapter 6 in the Bible, and John is one of the books that's written about Jesus' life. When we come to John chapter 6 in the Bible, and you're reading through it, Jesus says something that makes you stop and think, boy, Jesus, if you had the opportunity, would you take that back? Now, obviously we know Jesus is God, and we know that he says what he means to say. But when you read this, it still just leaves you scratching your head. So let's start reading the story. It's in John chapter 6, like I said. This is verse 51. These are Jesus' words. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said, again, <laughs> I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. So if you're wondering if you heard that right, 
Check out the reaction of the people who were listening to Jesus. This is verse 60. Many of his disciples, by the word, by the way, the word disciples here isn't referring to the 12. A disciple was just someone who followed Jesus, and there were a lot of people who followed Jesus, so they were called disciples. But then specifically, he had the 12. We'll get to them in a few minutes. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. There's one version of the Bible. It's called the New English Bible, where that statement they made reads like this. This is more than we can stomach. Why listen to such talk? So, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man. What's that sound like to you? Kind of sounds like cannibalism, doesn't it? Which is just a bit disgusting. And drink his blood. That's repulsive, right? And by the way, if it feels that way or sounds that way to you, just know this. To his Jewish audience who was listening, it was far, far worse. You see, they had laws, and one of the laws said, you don't ever drink blood. In fact, they were so careful about this, not only would they not drink blood, but when they would eat an animal, they would not eat an animal that had been strangled and then cooked because the blood had not been, um, had not come out of the body. They would slice the throat of an animal and let it bleed, let it bleed out so they wouldn't have the blood in it when they would eat it. I'm saying, I'm not saying that to be offensive or to make you feel squeamish. Just know that's just the way it worked. Um, my boys like to eat red meat, and especially steak, and both of them like their steak pretty rare. One in particular likes it really rare. I like to tell him that if there's not blood flowing on the plate, it's not rare enough for him. It's got to be moving for him to like it. Me, on the other hand, I actually like mine cooked. Okay, Medium, maybe even... Medium well is okay, but in our culture, it's not culturally, it's not religiously, it's not socially unacceptable to eat meat with blood in it or to eat it when it's rare. But just know to a Jewish person, they wouldn't touch it. This was forbidden. So it's no wonder that we read that at that point, some of the people who were following Jesus turned away and deserted him. Well, it's at that point that Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, the guys who were close to him, who followed him around. And I think when he turned and looked at them, they had these shocked looks on their faces. And they're whispering to each other, did Jesus say what I think he just said? Which wasn't the first time that had happened, by the way. So let's look at what Jesus said to them. This is John 6, 6 and 7. John 6, 67, and by the way, this is the question. Remember, we're in a series right now called Questions from Jesus. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked them, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words that give us eternal life. We believe 
And we know You are the Holy One of God. There's the question. Are you also going to leave? Now, did you notice that Peter was the one who replied to Jesus? It was always Peter, right? If You've actually heard us talk about Peter quite a bit if you've listened to uh, these talks the last few weeks. He was always the one to speak, to speak up. Sometimes that was good. He said the right thing. Sometimes that wasn't so good. He put his foot in his mouth. He said the wrong thing. Actually, I think in this situation, what he said is reasonable. It's fair based on what Jesus said. And I think what Peter is saying is, Jesus, we don't understand why you just said what you said. But you're God. You're the Son of God. You're the way to eternal life. And we are sticking with you. So let's start by looking at why in the world Jesus would say what he said to the people gathered there. And then we'll look at what he meant by that. Now, if you read John 6, you find that large crowds were following Jesus. And a lot of those people who were following him were following him for the wrong reasons. They had ulterior motives. And, you know, Jesus' goal was to never create large crowds. He didn't care about that. His goal was to make disciples or to have people follow him and follow his way, follow his teachings. And so he says this because he's going to begin stripping away at their motives and why they're following him. So, for example, John 6 actually gives us some insight into why people were following them. We have the context there. So, for example, first of all, they were some were following him because they wanted a free meal. I mean, that's actually true. If you read the first few verses of John chapter 6, that's where it's recorded, the feeding of the 5,000, and that's only the men, so there were probably like 10 or 15,000 people that day, and they, there were a lot of people there, and it was late, and they didn't have any to eat. So Jesus takes some bread and fish, and he starts breaking it up, and he has enough to feed everybody. And everybody's excited. Man, we follow this guy. We get free food. So some were following him because they were hoping for another fish sandwich, you know. So here's what we read, for example, in John 6.26. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understand the miraculous signs. There's one reason. There's another reason that some people were following Jesus, and it was they wanted to see miracles. Ooh, let's go for the show. Jesus was the best show in town. You know, if you read John 6, it's a few verses later. He had just walked on water. You know word got around about that. You hear what Jesus said? Man, let's follow this guy. Let's see what he's going to do. They just wanted to see the show. So here's John 6.30. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? And then we read in verse 42, John 6, 42, the next slide that the people said, they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? You see what they're insinuating there? Hey, your father... Isn't God the Father? It's Joseph. We know that. They're saying, who do you think you are claiming to be the Son of God? In other words, they wanted to keep Jesus in a box. They wanted him to be who they wanted him to be, not who he claimed to be. So, because they wanted a meal, some of them wanted a show, some of them just wanted to keep him in a box, he decided it was time to 
draw a line in the sand. He did something that most churches today would consider unheard of. He decided to preach a sermon so controversial that he knew it was going to send people away. Wow. So what did Jesus mean by what he said? Eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood. I think the first thing to realize is that Jesus was speaking figuratively. Now, I'm not sure his listeners understood that based on their reaction, but Jesus didn't bother explaining. He just let them leave. Now, we use figurative language all the time. We probably do it without even realizing we're doing it because that's just the way we communicate. The last time I can ever remember being on a roller coaster was at Bush Gardens in Florida. I was there on vacation with my family. My kids were teenagers at the time. They loved amusement parks. Bush Gardens had this brand new ride, first year for it. They, it was called Shikra. Shikra was a steel roller coaster that takes you 200 feet in the air and then drops you 90 degrees vertically. Yep, you drop straight down face first, and it does that twice on the ride. Um, here's a picture of what that vertical um, drop looked like, Shikra. Now, It was the first ride that my kids wanted to ride. And I enjoy riding roller coasters, so I thought, hey, I'm going to give it a go. It was fun. But it took me two hours to recover afterwards. I mean, there were like loops and corkscrews, and we went upside down. And I enjoyed roller coasters until I was about age 40. And then roller coasters started to make me feel sick. So I just sat and watched them ride rides for the next two hours. And when we got off of Shikra, you could have heard comments from my family like, oh, that vertical drop literally scared me to death. Or, I'm dying to do that again. Or, that roller coaster almost killed me. Now, we understand that as figurative language. Literally scared me to death? Not really. You're still alive, right? It just means it scared me a lot. Or, dying to try it again? Well... You don't have to die to write it again. Oh, it's figurative language. Or maybe you would have heard me say, that roller coaster almost killed me. Not really. I'd have felt like it at the time. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Not talking about roller coasters. He's He's using figurative language. Extreme in this case to make his point. But Jesus used figurative language all the time. For example, remember he said, I am the light of the world. Well, did he literally mean he was the sun, S-U-N? No, he didn't mean that. And here in John 6, he calls himself the bread of life. And Jesus loved to use figurative language to teach spiritual truth. Bread was the main food they ate at that time. They had it for breakfast, they had it for lunch, they had it for supper, they had it for snacks. And it was their main source of nourishment. Get it? Jesus is saying, I should be the source of nourishment for your soul. I need to be your focal point in life. So saying, eat my flesh means Make me the focal point of your life. Commit your life to me. Now, what about drink my blood, drinking his blood? 
maybe this one's even a little harder to comprehend. But again, Jesus is speaking figuratively. Understand this. Blood symbolized life to people in biblical time. For example, Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the body is in its blood. In the bread, Jesus was referring to life, and in the blood, he was referring to dying. He was saying, I'm going to die. You have to understand and accept why he died, in other words. Of course, when this originally happened, when he was talking to these people, this had yet to happen, so they didn't get it when he was talking about dying. And why did he have to die? To pay the penalty for all of our sins. For example, Romans 5, this is what we read. It says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. In the Old Testament, which is the first half of our Bible, it tells the story of the nation of Israel. And in order to make atonement for the sins of the people, blood had to be shed. Death, in other words. But God would provide an animal, often a lamb, as a substitute for the people. And when Jesus came, he was the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. In order to have forgiveness of your sins, you have to accept what Jesus did for you when he died. Drink his blood, in other words. Not literally, figuratively. So, when Jesus is saying that you have to drink his blood, what he's really saying is that you have to accept by faith what he has done for you. You have to identify with him. Eat my flesh, completely commit yourself to Jesus if you're going to follow him. Surrender. He becomes a focal point of your life. Drink my blood, acceptance of Jesus' death for you, a willingness to identify yourself with his death as a follower. In other words, it's commitment and acceptance. So, here's a key question to ask yourself. Are you following Jesus for the right reason? Because of who He is and what He has done? Or perhaps is it more like those who were following Him in John chapter 6? Following Him for what He can do for you. Do you see Jesus as someone to fix your problems? To make your life happier? To make your life better? To give you what you want? Or... Are you following him because he has the words of eternal life which demands commitment and acceptance? What we're talking about today brings us to what happened at the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is when Jesus got together with his 12 disciples the night before he died. He took bread and he took wine. And he started a practice that happens in Christian churches throughout the world even today. I want to read it to you and see if what I'm going to read to you and what Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper takes on new meaning for you now that you know the significance of the statements about his flesh 
and his blood. This is Luke chapter 22. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciple, to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of or he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So when, if you're a follower of Jesus, when we take communion, when we eat that little piece of bread or wafer or cracker, and we drink the grape juice, it symbolizes something. And you know, different churches believe differently about this, but we believe that um, the bread and the juice are symbols of what Jesus has done for us. That's why taking communion is so important as a follower of Jesus. Jesus told us to do it, and it carries incredible meaning and symbolism, sacred symbolism attached to it. In fact, communion has four distinct purposes. And you can find all these in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're not going to take the time to read through all that this morning. I'm going to put the references up here. I would encourage you to read it on your own um, so you can digest it a little better. But here's the first reason. The first is remembering, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11, 24, and 25. You know, it's so easy to get distracted with the busyness of life. And so we regularly need to be reminded of the miracle of love and grace we have by Jesus dying for us. By taking communion, we're retelling the story of what Jesus has done for us. We are, in a sense, renewing our commitment to Jesus. Now this looks to the past. Second purpose is participating. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24 and 25, we read that Jesus said, do this to remember me. We aren't just to look at something. We're not just to reflect. We're not just to sing songs. We're not just to listen to teaching about Jesus' death. We're to get active. We're to participate by eating the bread, and drinking the juice. This has to do with what we do in the present. And then a third purpose is announcing. Jesus said to do this until He comes back. And every time we take communion, we're announcing, we're declaring that Jesus died for us in expectation that He could come back at any time. Jesus promised He would come back. And communion is an announcement that you are personally looking for the return of Jesus. This looks to the future. And then finally, examining. That's a fourth purpose. It's really, really important. We examine ourselves before we take communion to make sure our hearts are right with God. So that we can live with forgiveness of sins. It cost Jesus His life. So we owe it to Him to live a life honoring to Him. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to make communion a priority in your life. It's that important. Um, we give you a couple opportunities to do that here at the Ridge. One is on Sunday mornings at the end of our services. We do that about once a month. Um, showing up for that is a statement to Jesus of just how important you consider what He's done for you. 
And, you know, if you prefer to take communion more often, once this COVID thing is behind us, you can stop by our prayer room, um, which is out in the atrium next to the cafe, any Sunday morning, and we have it set up in there for you to take any time you want. Commitment and acceptance. Have you done that? Have you accepted Jesus' death for you? Are you completely committed, surrendered to Him, your life to Him? We're going to give you the opportunity to take communion this morning. And it's really important as a follower of Jesus that you first examine your heart and make sure you're following Jesus for the right reasons. That your heart is right when you take communion. You know, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to participate in communion, it starts by accepting what He's done for you when He died and committing your life to Him. If you've never done that, you can do that even right now before we take communion. I'd like to pray. Father, we thank You that You loved us so much that You sent Jesus into the world to be the sacrifice for our sin. And Jesus, thank You for being willing to give up Your life to go to a cross where Your body, body hung and where Your blood, blood was shed so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. You were our substitute. You died in our place. And so as we come to communion and we remember, we participate, we announce, we examine. Jesus, this is such a sacred moment. This is such a meaningful moment for us as we remember Your death for us. We thank You, we love You, and we pray these things in Your name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to give you the opportunity to take communion. Again, the bread symbolizes Jesus' body, which was put on a cross. That cup of juice symbolizes His blood, which was shed for us. If you are watching online, you can go ahead now and get ready to do that. If you're here in person, we have the cups, the prepackaged cups beside your chair. They should be on the floor right there by you. You can take those, and there are two tabs on them. The first one, you lift and you can get the wafer out. The second tab um, is for the juice. Be careful when you pull that second tab back. It's pretty easy to spill the juice. If you have children with you, and if they're going to participate, you might even want to do that for them so that they don't spill this morning. And our band is going to sing a song to help us focus on what we've been talking about this morning. And then at some point, um, if you would like, you're welcome to go ahead and take communion on your own.